Hello, and welcome to my podcast, The Meiji Restoration, A China Contrast. This is Episode 5, The Ryakuz Affair. For those of you have, who have been keeping track, in the last episode, I talked about the growing pains of the young Japanese nation, about its lack of credibility and legitimacy. I also spoke about the charter oath was adopted and sworn to by the emperor. And finally, I talked about the Iwakura mission the diplomatic mission around the world to help Japan in its early days establish a rapport and to gain valuable insight for its future. In this episode, I want to talk about the Samurai Rebellion and what led up to it. I also want to talk about the Ryoku Nation Affair. There's also more about Korea and China and former President General Grant visits Japan. By the mid to late 1870s, the new government faced financial collapse. Currency depreciation that led to dangerous inflation seems to be one of the reasons for the collapse. Inflation weakened the value of the taxes that the Meiji government collected. The inflation also seriously undercut the unemployed samurai pensions. Remember, the Meiji had canceled the samurai and in its reorganization of the government led to the cancellation of their pensions. And remember, the once proud samurais really had no role in the new government. They were generally unskilled. They lacked commercial experience. Many were destitute as they squandered what they did have. Maybe expectantly, these conditions led to great distress and downright dissatisfaction. It's also probable that some form of resistance would surface. And it did. In early 1877, many of the disaffected samurais from the Satsuma region in southwest Japan rebelled. While the Satsumas had combined with the Choshu samurai to end the Tokugawa shogunate and had provided some of the early leaders in the Meiji government the Satsuma domain had always been known for their stubbornness, their recalcitrance. So it was probably not much of a surprise these samurai would rebel against the harsh economic conditions they found themselves. The rebellion 
goes by several synonymous names. Sinan War, or the Satsuma Rebellion, or the Samurai War, all the same. It was led by a fellow by the name of Saigo Takamori. It lasted eight months before it was finally put down. By the end of September 1877, it was over. It had been a serious test for the new emperor and his westernized army and weapons. It cost millions of yen, 10,000 injured and 6,000 killed, along with a sense of national loss. However, once the result Once the revolt was put down, pretty much ended any more armed resistance against the Meiji Emperor. The rebellion actually marked a positive watershed moment for the Meiji government. After Saigo Takamori's defeat, the country unified as never before. Restoration leaders could now look forward to moving on to, quote, the more thorough fulfillment of the Restoration, end quote. Beginning in 1878, there were rather intense diplomatic moves between Japan and China. The predicate were the Ryukyu or Nansei Islands, and the Japanese claims with the islands, islands, and whether or not the Ryukyu people were Japanese subjects. Now, I touched on some of these issues in more detail and from a different perspective in episode 18 of my first season podcast about the Qing Dynasty. The jurisdiction of these islands had long presented an ambiguous situation. For a long time, China claimed the islands were a tributary state. Indeed, from the 14th century, these were a tributary of China. But in the early Edo era, the Satsuma domain invaded Ryukua. They took control of the northern islands and allowed the remainder to, to act as if it were sovereign and autonomous. The Ryukul relationship with China was valuable to the islands because it allowed them access to China trade. After the Japanese invasion in the early Edo era, the islands kept up the appearance they were still autonomous. And throughout the Edo era, Japan never really had an official relationship with China. So the Ryukyu deception benefited the Japanese as it allowed Japan indirect access to China trade. But all of this changed with the arrival of Commodore Perry. He had also stopped at Okinawa, part of the Ryukyu Islands, before going to Japan. It was the Meiji government 
that pushed for integration of the Ryukyu Islands into Japan. But remember, the Meiji government had a treaty with China since 1871. And the Japanese wanted to amend the treaty, offering to insert a most favored nation clause. And in return, the Meiji government was willing to cede to China some of the southernmost Ryukyu Islands. However, it was a trap for the Chinese, as I talked about in Season 1, Episode 18 of my Qing Dynasty podcast. In 1875, the Japanese ordered the Ryukyu to stop paying to China the annual tribute. This is a good time to point out why these islands were an important focus. I already mentioned one. The island's relationship with China offered an indirect access to China trade. But Japan had additional motivation to secure the islands. For a while, the Satsuma domain in Japan claimed the islands. And it did so to bolster its status. Another was the islands were in Japan's backyard. And Japan did not want to appear weak to the international community if it backed down from its pursuit for control of the islands. Also, the islands provided a buffer zone to protect protect Japan. This is very obvious if you look at a map. Things came to a head in 1879 as the Meiji government sought to capitalize on its good relations with the U.S. and England to cajole the Qing dynasty into acquiescence. Enter into the story former President General U.S. Grant. Grant was the first United States President to visit Japan China, and Korea. In June 1879, he and his, his wife arrived to Japan. Grant's trip was hatched from an idea of the U.S. Navy Secretary Richard Thompson. Its purpose was the belief it would help improve America's credibility as a nation of commerce. The Meiji government wanted to use the former president's status as a mediator, so to speak, in their dispute with China. But nothing ever really panned out from whatever efforts former President Grant did. All we're really left with is General Grant did ceremoniously plant trees throughout Japan. So I guess all was not lost. However, we now know that in the months before Grant arrived to Japan, the Meiji government had already resolved to pursue control of the islands regardless of U.S. support or Chinese objection. In April 1879, the Meiji officially declared the Ryukyu Islands were incorporated as the prefecture of Okinawa. The Ryukyu's affair, in my opinion, 
perfectly exemplifies the status and desire of the Meiji government at that time. That is one reason why I have stressed it. After all of this, China's relationship with the islands officially ended. And from that point forward, there were sustained hostilities between Japan and China. After After the Satsuma Rebellion, the rulers could focus on creating new structures and a political system that would be acceptable to the international community. By 1879, there was a representative form of government in place in Japan at the local level. The Meiji government wanted to create a constitutional form of national government, but that would take time. They believed creating a written constitution would advance its credibility and standing with other nations. And, most importantly, it would help Japan achieve its one overarching goal, to revise the unequal treaties it had with the Western powers. About this same time, populism was becoming a national movement in Japan And it also wanted a written constitution as well. Farmers at this time were the largest group of citizens in Japan. Japan's population at that time was around 35 million. 28 million of them were involved in farming. By the late 1870s, they became financially stressed. Modernization did not really do much for them. They suffered in many respects from the new government, just as much as the samurais. The modernization was costly, and along with inflation at this time, a heavy tax burden, directly or indirectly, fell on the farmers, primarily in the form of higher rents. These pressures would continue to build into the next decade. From 1879, Japan would enter into what could be described as as a prolonged period of intense popular agitation against the government. Meanwhile, tensions with Korea had not gone away. Treaty talks wore on. Eventually, the Japanese sent its warships in a bit of gunboat diplomacy. The Japanese had learned well the aggressive tactics that was used on them by Commodore Perry and what the English used on the Chinese. Japan actually attacked a Korean fort, and Koreans were given an ultimatum. Submit or die. It chose to submit. In 1876, Korea and Japan agreed to the Treaty of Kanghua. The treaty defined Korea as an independent nation on equal footing with Japan. Despite the fact, the Manchus still considered Korea a vassal state. 
Korea also agreed to open three treaty ports with Japan and also agreed to reciprocal ambassador exchanges. The Chinese would acquiesce to this outright aggressive and imperial effort by the Meiji government. And for anyone further interested in the events I just spoke about, I refer you to chapter 19 or episode 19 of my season one podcast on the Qing dynasty. It is obvious the Japanese approach and efforts to modernize resembled little of what was happening in China contemporaneously. The Manchus at this time had only begun to modernize, and as we have learned, their approach not remotely similar to the Meiji government. The Manchus never aggressively sought out Western intelligence as the Japanese had. The Manchus would in time do this, but already two decades behind Japan. Next episode, there's more about Korea and China. But I want to spend most of the episode talking about some of the circumstances and some of the people that would be involved in drafting a written constitution for Japan. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.